Today's scripture comes from the book of Psalm and the book of Jeremiah. Um, Psalm chapter 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 106, verse 1. Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm chapter 107, verse 1. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 10 through 11. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast. In the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Hope you had a wonderful week and a restful one at that as we now get uh, headlong into the summer now as we go on to this crazy ride um, where things get hotter, things get active, and things get blurry. So I hope you're ready. (laughs) I know I'm not ready for it. So uh, without further ado, let's bow our heads and ask for the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we ask that you would now encourage us and empower us and equip us with the preaching of the word that will be preached now. We pray that whatever distracting, discouraging thoughts and emotions that may be stirring us and causing us to be unable to hear your word, that by your spirit, you would banish them out of our hearts and our minds so that we could be fully present by your very presence here and now, as you promise that you say in your word you would be. Whenever the saints gather, when they sit at your feet, when they listen to the word, you say, O Lord, that you are among us. And so, Father, fulfill your promise and be with us, for we desperately need your word to nourish and to equip and to help us see for who we are and who you are and what our place in this world may be. Well, Father, we pray now that you'll bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, John, what do you do for a living there? If there's any question that I despise getting from people that I meet for the first time, it's that one. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not ashamed of being a minister of the gospel, and I'm not embarrassed to be a Christian. But let's be honest, folks. We live in a day and age where there is a growing, unwelcoming spirit, even downright hostility when it comes to our faith. Amen? (laughs) A pastor friend of mine once recounted a story, a history, where person approached him with that question and he responded well i'm a minister i'm a pastor and this man responded to my friend this way pastor eh so what you're telling me is you're like a used car salesman huh and my pastor friend was like what what do you mean by that and the guy just simply said you know you pastors you're like used car salesmen you're trying to get us to buy into something that you claim is all precious and valuable when in reality it's just useless junk Needless to say, when I heard that, I was not encouraged or excited to have someone ask me that question themselves, right? We live in a day and age where belief in God is similar to how a young, naive person believes about their first used car that happens to be a lemon. On the surface, it looks valuable, it looks useful, when in reality, it's just worthless junk. Why? 
We're continuing our sermon series that we began a few months ago entitled God as He Is. And the whole point of this series is to consider what the Bible has to say about God, contrary to what our society, what our culture says about God. So far in this series, we looked at the various attributes or characteristics of God, such as His holiness, His eternal nature, His incomprehensibility. Well, today, we're going to zero in on a particular attribute of God that is very, very contentious because of the fact so many people have a hard time believing that it's actually true, and that is the goodness of God. I want to talk to you today about the goodness of God. You see, the problem that many people have with God's goodness is the same reason that many people have the idea of a good used car. They think neither of those really exist in real Life, Just like there's no such thing as a good used car, there's no such thing as a good God, especially if you're talking about the God of the Bible. Case in point, a few years ago, Richard Dawkins, the famed radical atheist, said this about our God of the Bible. He said, quote, the God of the Old Testament, which is our God, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachastic, capriciously malevolent bully. This is the context that we live in today, where a growing number of people have acquired this belief in God, and I would venture to guess that some of us at our worst moments in our journey of faith have also struggled with this idea that the God you follow, that the God you worship, is he always good? Is he really good? And the reason why so many of us struggle, oh, good grief, sorry about that. Candy wrapper. Was it for me? Um, the reason why so many have a hard time believing in this idea of a good God is because of suffering, specifically unjust suffering, suffering that is evil, suffering that doesn't seem fair, suffering that is just egregious, suffering that is just gratuitous, suffering that just seems like it has no meaning or purpose to it. There is just so much suffering that is so undeserving and so unholy that it makes a person look like an absolute fool to maintain a belief in the existence of a good God. And so the question that I want to ask this morning is that how do we as followers of Christ fortify and maintain our conviction that our God is good, even though we live in a world that is constantly throwing, quote unquote, evidence against us that the God we love and cherish maybe isn't so good at all. So with that in mind, we're going to talk about two things so that we can better understand what it means for God to be good in the context of living in an unjust world. And that is, number one, the primary purpose of unjust suffering. Number two, how God's goodness triumphs over unjust suffering. So the primary purpose of unjust suffering. And finally, how God's goodness triumphs over unjust suffering. Just two things, right? Let's begin. First, the primary purpose of unjust suffering. Now, right off the bat, some of you may have a problem with the fact that I've entitled my first point this way. The primary purpose of unjust suffering, uh, pastor, what in the world are you talking about? There is no purpose to unjust suffering. That's why we call it unjust, right? In other words, it is suffering that is unjustified. It has no justifiable reasons for its existence. By its very nature, it's pointless, and therefore it is purposeless. When a little child is slowly being eaten away from the inside by cancer, there's no purpose in that. There's no point. There's no justifiable reason. And for you to even imply that there is, 
is at best very foolish, at worst it's downright cruel. There is no possible reason, no justification as to why a poor child in that situation is suffering the way that they are. Hey, I get it. For a child to suffer in that manner is horrific. And I can completely understand why you would feel the way I would also feel in that situation. To where in that context you could say to someone suffering in that moment, hey, there is a purpose, there is a reason. It can just come across as downright foolish and Absolutely offensive. But I wonder, does that therefore mean that the belief that unjust suffering has no purpose, is that absolutely and always true? If you ever study philosophy, at some point you'll come across the name Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche was a German atheistic philosopher who popularized the philosophical system known as nihilism, and he's also the one who created that famous quote that we hear so often in Philosophy 101 courses today. God is dead, right? The guy was an incredible pessimist to the point where he was so full of philosophical contradictions that he ended up killing himself. The guy was deeply, deeply disturbed. He was a man of incredible pessimism and skepticism. But yet, even of someone of the nature and stature of Nietzsche could not convince himself philosophically that unjust suffering absolutely means there's no purpose behind it. How do I know? Evidenced by the fact that he also coined another famous statement that we see so often today. You know what statement I'm thinking about? It's this one. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. (laughs) Did you know he's the one who created that? No, it wasn't Lance Armstrong, folks, even though he acted like he, he did. No, Nietzsche was the one who came up with that idea, which really calls the question, does it not, the absolute certainty so many of us have with this idea that there could be never any unjust suffering when it comes, excuse me, never justifiable reasons for unjust suffering. Now, let's take a break from the philosopher just a moment and bring it down to the level of day-to-day experience. Because when we think about our everyday lives or the everyday lives of those whom we love, one of the things that we do discover every now and then is that as we go through unjust sufferings or as our loved one goes through unjust sufferings, to our surprise, to our shock, that sometimes and many times there is a reason behind it, a reason that by nature is good, a reason that actually creates blessings. Back in 2013, author Andrew Solomon came out with his award-winning book called Far From the Tree, and it's basically a book where he profiles various different families that all have one thing in common, Each of these families have either one or many children in their home that are filled with severe medical disabilities, ranging from autism, blindness, deafness, to some really chronic life-threatening diseases. One particular family that he profiled was David and Sarah. David and Sarah were married, and they had their first son by the name of Jamie. And Jamie was born severely mentally retarded. In fact, he was so mentally retarded and so physically disabled that as an infant, he had to put a per- they had to put a permanent catheter into his body because he was in such bad shape. Fast forward a couple years later, they go for another child, a second son by the name of Sam. Turns out, much more worse off than his older brother, Jamie. Much more mentally retarded. Much more physically handicapped. The author of the book interviewed the mom, Sarah, and asked point blank, do you regret? going for your second child. And this is what she wrote. Quote, if I had known that the condition might be repeated, 
we would not have risked it. Having said that, if I were told we can just wipe out that experience of having a second handicapped child, I wouldn't. It absolutely blows my mind the impact that a blind, retarded, nonverbal, non-ambulatory person has had on people. He has a way of opening and touching people that we can't come near. That's part of our survival story, our marveling at how he has moved so many people, end quote. See, just by living life, one of the surprises, one of the silver linings that come out of the gloomy despairs of life is that in the midst of unjust suffering, sometimes, many times, there is a reason. And that reason is good. And that reason provides blessing. One particular story that I think highlights this very vividly is the story of Joseph. For those of you who aren't familiar with the story of Joseph, he's found in the book of Genesis from chapter 37 onward. He is one of 12 sons of Jacob. And not only is he just one of the 12 sons of Jacob, he also happens to be Jacob's favorite kid, which also means his brothers hates his guts. And in a moment of bitter rivalry and envious hatred, these brothers do the horrific thing of selling their brother into slavery to a bunch of slave traders on their way to Egypt. Now, if you think that's messed up, hold on, it gets worse. Because if you keep reading his story, Joseph goes upon Misery upon misery upon unjust suffering to further unjust suffering that manifests in him being in slavery, being released, being falsely accused of rape, being put back into prison falsely. I mean, this man has suffered some incredible, egregious evil against him. Tremendous unjust suffering that just piled on top of him. And at the pinnacle of his story, when he was in a position to get back at the very men who started all of this, his brothers, what does he say to them? Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 19, we read, But Joseph said to them, his brothers, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Interesting. Here we read, coming out of the mouth of Joseph himself, his claim that the unjust suffering that he went through had a purpose. Well, actually, that's not technically correct. If you take a closer look at what he actually says, he says the unjust suffering that he went through has two purposes. There's the purpose of the evil agents, which in this case are his brothers. But then there is the purpose of God. You see, when it comes to unjust suffering, suffering that is perpetrated by evil forces, evil agents. Okay. The Bible says there are two purposes within those contexts. There is the purpose of the evil perpetrators themselves, and there is God's purpose behind it. And these two purposes can be distinguished by labeling them as the primary purpose of God and the, excuse me, the primary purpose of suffering and the ultimate purpose of suffering. The primary purpose of suffering and the ultimate purpose of suffering. Now, I'm not going to go into much about the ultimate purpose of suffering because you already know it, because it's something you've been taught Over and over, and it's something that you hear all the time as people go through tragedy and sorrow. Sometimes when people go through a tragic event, they'll encounter somebody in their life saying, you know, God has a mysterious plan. All of this will work out. You just have to hold on to faith. You know, and as cliche as that sounds, and if you're not careful, as offensive as that can sound, nevertheless, it's absolutely true. The Bible promises us, Christians, 
and not even just Christians, but even anyone who's made in the image of God, that as we go through unjust sufferings, somehow, some way, God will make it work out for his glory and for the good of those who love him. Isn't that what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28? He says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. So there you have it. God has an ultimate purpose to the unjust suffering caused by evil forces upon our lives. It is for his glory. It is for our good. But now with that said, there is another purpose that many of us are not aware of. And that's what I refer to as the primary purpose of unjust suffering. And that's the purpose that evil agents have who hate you are trying to fulfill as they unleash this suffering into your life. And so here's the question. What is this primary purpose of unjust suffering? Read again with me the three passages all found in the book of Psalms in order from 100 to 106 to 107. We read, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. The Bible says many times over and over, God is good for a wide variety of reasons. But the one particular reason that it repeats more than any other reason is the one that we read multiple times in these three readings. It's because God's love endures forever. The most frequent reason the Bible gives as to why God is good, according to Scripture, is because His love endures forever. In the original Hebrew, it literally just says, God's love is forever. It's forever. What do we mean when something is forever? It means it doesn't stop. It doesn't sleep. It never ceases. It's just ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. That's what it means. Now, you're thinking, okay, the Bible says God's love endures forever. What does that have anything to do with this primary purpose of unjust suffering that you're referring to? Let me show you. Read with me the first half of verse 10 in Jeremiah 33, where it says, Thus says the Lord, in the place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate. Come on back. Here's a little background to help you understand what's being spoken of here. The prophet Jeremiah is quoting a phrase that was very popular by the time he wrote these words, okay? And the reason why these gloomy and depressing words became so popular in the culture is because around this time, the Babylonian empire was waging war against the nation of Judah. And it was obvious to everyone that Judah was gonna fall, that the empire was gonna uh, break through the city walls and basically conquer them, okay? It was so obvious it was inevitable and so the question is who exactly are these babylonians who are these people that are attacking god's people we'll consider how god in his own words describes these babylonians which is found in habakkuk chapter one starting in verse six i the lord am raising up the babylonians a cruel and violent people they will march across the world and conquer other lands they are notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like On they come, all bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind, sweeping captives ahead of them like sand. These are evil people who are bent on doing unjust things against God's people. And if you look at what we just read in verse 10 a moment ago, you can see the purpose that they're trying to fulfill and really succeeded in doing. What is their purpose? They're trying to get 
the people of Judah, God's people, who lived in the cities of Judah, to think of their cities as a waste. In other words, the primary purpose the Babylonians wanted to instill in the people of God is to cause the people of God to think that their cities are a waste. A waste. In the original Hebrew, it just means pointless, unimportant, insignificant. That is what evil does. That is the primary purpose of evil. It takes good things and it makes it look insignificant, unimportant, and even inappropriate. Confused? Let me explain. Back when 9-11 happened, I was a grad student in Philadelphia. And one of the things that I noticed right away in the aftermath, the days right after 9-11 happened, everything was closed. Schools were closed. Restaurants were closed. Businesses were closed. And I know it was much worse up here when that happened. Everything was gone. Everything was closed. Everything is empty. And what's so ironic is this is New York City. This is the city that never sleeps. This is a city that's always enduring. This is a city that never ceases. And yet, in light of that evil, it seemed as if everything that was happening in this city that gives off this importance of, oh, we're doing such important things because we're the most important city in the world, all of a sudden, an atrocious evil made everything that this city was about and doing all seem insignificant, trivial, and even downright offensive to keep going on, right? The underlying message was clear. To allow our cities to continue to operate to where we live our normal day-to-day lives, it just seemed so inappropriate. Why? Because that is what evil does. It trivializes good things to the point where it seems so inappropriate, so offensive to engage as if nothing has happened. I still remember a few days after 9-11, my roommate and I, we went to the local gym to do our routine workout, as you can tell from my physique, right? It was just a couple days later, after 9-11. And I remember we tried opening the door. It was locked during normal business hours. I was like, what's going on? And we saw the manager come out because we recognized him. And my roommate's like, yo, man, are you guys closed? And the manager was like, yeah, we are closed. And then my roommate said, why? And I could tell you, I can still remember the look on the manager's face. He looked at my friend with such disgust. And he says, do you really need to ask? Now, my friend was embarrassed at that moment. And I was embarrassed to be this guy's friend. I was like, oh, I'm glad you said it, not me. Right? <clears throat> as soon as he said that, we felt so embarrassed. Because even though I was living in Philly, the evil done here up in New York on 9-11 just made the good things that I did in my city, right? Like working out just seems so trivial, so insignificant, and so inappropriate to the point where it would be offensive to just keep acting like everything was back to normal. See, and this is what happened here in Jeremiah 33. The people of Judah saw their cities, especially the city of Jerusalem, as a superficial, insignificant city to the point where they felt offended that their city even existed. Now, why is this such a big deal? What is this all about? Why is this attitude and this mindset so crazy? Consider what it says in Psalm 87, specifically how God feels about the cities of Judah and 
his beloved Jerusalem. He said, on the holy mountain stands the city founded by the Lord, Jerusalem. He loves the city of Jerusalem more than any other city in, Jer- in Israel. O city of God, what glorious things are said of you. The cities of Judah, but especially the city of Jerusalem, is a symbolic representation of God's love for his people. And for God's people to experience the Babylonian exile, an evil, atrocious act to the point where they start thinking, man, my city is so insignificant, it's so unimportant, and if, in some ways I feel ashamed to be a citizen of this city. What are they really ashamed of? What do they feel like is really insignificant? What is really trivialized by this evil? It's God's love, right? That is the primary purpose of unjust suffering. When people go through unjust suffering, what the primary purpose that Satan and his minions have is to cause you to think that God's love is so limp, it's so impotent, it's so insignificant, and maybe even downright offensive to you. Try it sometimes. No, don't try this. But if you ever tell someone who's going through tremendous unjust suffering, you say, God loves you, man. God loves you, sister. Do you really think at that moment they're going to be filled with such joy and comfort? Probably not. If anything, they'll be quite offended and hurt by it because one of the temptations that so many of us fall into when we go through unjust suffering is that the love of God, it's so insignificant. It's so trivial. It's so minimized. It's so insignificant in my heart and my mind. It does nothing for me. That is evil's primary objective when it comes to unjust suffering. When it comes upon you, it makes you feel that the love of God is so insignificant and even inappropriate at a time like this. Something that is so irrelevant, so unfitting, so unhelpful. And therefore, inappropriate to live out as if it was true. In other words, evil makes God's love not something that endures forever, not a love that sleeps, that never sleeps. No, it makes it shut down like the terrorists shut down this city for a few weeks. Because they made everything that we did here seem so insignificant, so unimportant. And this is the mindset of the atheist today. You talk to an atheist, this love of God doctrine, they get so offended by it. They get so upset. But here's the thing. Jeremiah, in just a moment, is going to show how God's love actually trivializes the unjust suffering that tries to trivialize his love for his people. How so? Let me go to my final point, how God's goodness times over unjust suffering. Read again verse 10 of our passage of 33 of Jeremiah, but this time let's include a portion of verse 11. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say it is a waste, Without man or beast in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Here, God is making a promise to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. In a sense, God is saying, My beloved, my people, listen, even though you have gone through unjust suffering through these evil Babylonians, and even though you will go through more unjust sufferings, I promise you that you will come out of this. And not only will you simply survive, you will come out of it with mirth, with voices of gladness. Hold on. What's mirth? Do you know what mirth is? It's literally hysterical laughter. You ever laughed so hard? 
that you lost control of your bladder? I have it. Maybe I have. I don't know. Have you ever laughed so hard that it hurts and you felt like you were going to die of suffocation? That's mirth. Okay? That is mirth. (laughs) And yet, if you remember the situation that Jeremiah is speaking into, that's crazy talk. How in the world can God make such an audacious claim that his people will go through such tremendous unjust suffering and they'll come out of it filled with mirth? He tells us in verse 11. Oh, hold on. Let me back up a moment. The idea that God can promise mirth, hysterical laughter in the midst of unjust suffering, it just sounds crazy because, again, what does evil do? It takes good things that we do, working out, having dinner parties, having hysterical laughing moments, just seems so awkward, so inappropriate, so wrong, right? Some of you are old enough to remember um, the episode of Saturday Night Live weeks after 9-11. Do you guys remember that? Some of you are old enough to remember that episode. Uh, it opened with Mayor Rudy Giuliani uh, opening the show where he literally said, I now declare on national TV, New York City is open for business again. He literally said those words like New York City is open for business. And he went on to say that, you know, some of the key crucial institutions of New York, like SNL, needed to keep doing what they were doing. And Lauren Michaels, the executive producer of SNL, asked the mayor an interesting question. He said, but your honor, can we be funny? (laughs) Can we be funny? I mean, he was joking, but yet he wasn't. Why did Lauren Michaels ask that question? Because, again, that's what evil does. It takes something that's good, something that is life-giving, laughter, and it trivializes it to the point where it becomes offensive. And yet, here again, to say God is promising his people in the midst of unjust suffering, you can and you will come out of it with laughter. Now, just to give you a picture of how audacious this claim is, I want to show you a picture of a recent event that actually happened not too long ago. Can you take that picture up? This is a real picture that happened a few weeks ago, and this is 24-year-old Shema Ismail, a Muslim-American taking a selfie in front of protesters at the first annual Islamic Circle of North America. And look at her beautiful smile, right? (laughs) Look at it. Now, depending on who you are, you could totally interpret that smile and be offended by it because it almost seems like she's kind of minimizing the egregious evil these protesters are doing in a very sacred moment for the Muslim community, right? As if she's kind of minimizing uh, the evil that these men are perpetuating, trying to, quote-unquote, laugh it off like it's nothing serious. But depending on who you are, you could also interpret that as saying, actually, This is a good thing because what she's doing is she's trivializing the evil that's trying to trivialize her and her community, right? That is exactly what God is saying here in Jeremiah 33. He, in a sense, he's saying, in spite of all the unjust suffering that tries to trivialize you, you will be able to trivialize the evil that tries to trivialize my love for you, is what he's saying. You will be able to laugh it off. How can God make that kind of claim? Because of what he says in verse 11. Give thanks to the Lord, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Here it is again. God echoing what it says in the Psalms. Why? He is saying, no matter how dark, 
no matter how dangerous, no matter how despairing an evil might be that comes upon you in the form of unjust suffering, my love will never be trivialized. That's what he's saying. He's saying no matter how miserable, no matter how tragic, no matter how much of a loss you go through, my love is incapable of being minimized, of being trivialized, of ever being offensive or inappropriate. Now you hear that and you can't help but to wonder with a further question and say, how can God's love do this? How is God's love able to be immune to the trivialization of evil? He goes on to say in verse 11, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first says the Lord. Here God is saying that the reason why his love cannot be trivialized in the context of evil is because his love inspires him, compels him, obligates him even to make sure that you are restored from all the tragedy, from all the loss, from all the brokenness, from all the irreconciliation that happens in your life. He will restore the fortunes of those who have been victimized by unjust suffering. That's what he's saying. And yet, it's not enough, is it? Because it compels us to ask a further question. What do you mean, God? What do you mean you're going to restore our fortunes? That's so vague. That's so nebulous. Can you help us out? Can you give us a more concrete idea of what you mean? He does. Because if you go back to verse 11, he goes on to further describe with a very clear, concrete, symbolic image of what this restoration looks like. What does he say? I will restore the voices of the bridegroom and the bride. I will restore the voices of the bridegroom and the bride. This is what God provides as a symbol to show how he restores his people. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, this imagery of a bride and bridegroom in the context of restoration, that should ring a bell. Let me give you a hint. The last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth has disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be what? No more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever for those of you who aren't aware this is the apostle john writing the words and it's in the context of him seeing a vision of the second coming of christ where jesus god comes back and he restores all things and notice the first thing that john witnesses god does right away what's the first thing that he undermines what's the first thing that he reverses death death right that's the very first work of redemption that he does. He undermines death. You know, as they say, first things first. If you've heard that phrase in business before, you know what it means. It means you get dealing with your first greatest priority, right? The first thing that you need to do, first things first, is making sure that you focus on your greatest priority. And as far as Jesus is concerned, the greatest priority that he has when it comes to restoring mankind is dealing with death, not unjust suffering the greatest priority for jesus is not alleviating unjust suffering it's undermining death this is why the first thing that he does when he comes back is he resurrects everybody he undermines death for everyone and then he wipes away the tears right 
Death is the greatest evil against mankind as far as God is concerned. It is not unjust suffering. That's the underlying message God is saying to his people in Jeremiah 33 with this reference to bride and bridegroom. And this is something we need to grasp. You know why? Because too often I hear this argument, and it's not from people who are suffering, but people who just want to justify their disbelief in God, in a good God. They'll say things like, you know, a good God would never permit unjust suffering to exist. So because unjust suffering exists, therefore a good God does not. What I described for you is known as the logical problem of evil, and it looks like this. All right? The traditional problem of evil. Premise one, a good loving God would never want suffering to exist. Premise two, unjust suffering exists. Conclusion, therefore, a good loving God does not exist. This is the traditional problem of evil that you study in philosophy all the time. And yet, it has a false underlying assumption, right? What is that false assumption? It's the assumption that says unjust suffering is the worst evil a man or woman or child could ever experience. But as I just said, according to scripture, that is not the worst evil that a person could suffer. The worst evil a person could suffer, the greatest evil, is death. That's why God came into the world as Jesus Christ, and he did what he did, lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross as our Savior substitute, so that if you repent and ask for forgiveness of sin, and you make Jesus the Lord of your life, he could undermine the greatest evil that is against you by giving you eternal life. That's the gospel, right? If I could frame the gospel into a logical argument like this, it would be like this. Updated problem of evil. Premise one, a good loving God would never want the greatest evil, death, to exist. Premise two, I don't know why it says one, but death was undermined and destroyed by God in Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. Conclusion. Therefore, a good and loving God exists. This is the gospel. This is how God's goodness undermines unjust suffering. This is how you maintain faith and hope in the idea that the God that you follow and the God you worship is good, even though you live in a world filled with unjust suffering. Now, perhaps, most likely, this does not satisfy you. This is coming across to you as inept. And the reason why is because you're probably thinking something to the effect of, okay, I hear this argument, but I have one in response. Why can't God just get rid of both? I mean, if he's strong enough to get rid of death, why doesn't he just get rid of unjust suffering? Right? Doesn't it make sense that if he's powerful enough to get rid of death, shouldn't he also get rid of unjust suffering? You know? Why even allow us to go through that right, if he's willing to spare us the greater evil, which you argue is death? That's a great point. Let me read to you uh, what Pastor Tim Keller says that I think serves as a good response. Quote, Evil is the enemy of God's good creation and of God himself. And Jesus' entire mission was to take evil on and to end it. But evil is so deeply rooted in the human heart that if Christ had come in power to destroy it everywhere he found it he would have to destroy us too instead of coming as a general at the head of an army he went in weakness to the cross in order to pay for our sins so that someday he will return to wipe out evil without having to judge as judge us as well he will be able to receive us to himself because he bore our judgment himself 
on Calvary, end quote. You see, if God undermined unjust suffering, that would mean he would have to undermine the source of unjust suffering, evil agents that causes it. And yet, because the Bible says that we are all sinners, do you know what that means? It means that we're not just victims of unjust sufferings, we are also victimizers of unjust suffering as well. Meaning, if God really granted what you're asking for, don't just get rid of death, get rid of unjust suffering. Well, at some point, that would mean eventually he would have to take you out too. See, one of the things that we need to understand is that the reason why God chooses not to come in judgment and undermine perpetrators of violence, of sin, of cruelty, is so that he could show mercy. Mercy that every single one of you in here are recipients of. Why in the world would God want to wipe out the source of unjust suffering when his goal is to save who are perpetrators of unjust suffering? Does that make sense? You see, the whole point of what the gospel is trying to help us understand is that God has in mind not ultimately judgment and wrath, but restoration and reconciliation and renewal. But that will not happen if you have in this mind that the only suffering that he should alleviate is the unjust suffering that you're going through while at the same time forgetting that at some point in your life and at some point later on in your life, you will cause unjust suffering in other people. See, the whole point of what the gospel is to do is not to create a a karma-like existence where it's all good, bad, even out, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It is to bring hope and renewal and restoration so that when evil comes upon you, You can be like that young lady and you can laugh in its face and undermine evil's attempt to try and trivialize the love of God that is so vital and so crucial for your restoration for your life. So here's my question at CF. Do you grasp that? Do you understand that is the whole goal of what the gospel is trying to do? To get to a point where you can look at evil in the face and you can just respond with mirth and joyousness because you know that the love of God that is for you will never be trivialized and it will never be offensive, but yet something that must be central and must be taken seriously and must be vital for your life and for the hope of the world. I hope and pray that's something that you grasp more and more with each passing day. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand your goodness in the context of a broken world filled with unjust suffering, filled with evil and sorrow. Father, so many of us have struggled in our own hearts of trying to maintain the belief that you are good. How can we do that when it just seems that we're just surrounded with quote-unquote proof and evidence that you're not good? But Lord, we ask that you would help us to see what is true, what is false, and that we would understand that the goal of the world is not to destroy it, but to restore it and renew it with forgiving, merciful love that cannot be trivialized no matter how evil, how evil is committed to destroy it and to trivialize it. Lord, we pray 
that you will be with us as a community as we go through many unjust sufferings. Help us to not cower away in fear. Help us to not fear being offensive to those around us by living out the truth that you are good and that you are loving. Help us to live that out courageously, knowing that even when the darkest moments of sorrow come upon us, we know that the end will result in us filled with mirth, filled with joy, filled with laughter, like a bride receiving her bridegroom. Help us to live that out each day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.